And so, Father, we would humble our hearts and open our ears and listen carefully to your word to make the application needed today to grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that we would walk in the truth as you've called us to do. Minister to us now, we pray, through your word, in Jesus' name, amen. I remember it was barely 6 a.m. when our telephone rang, and unusual that it would ring that early. I remember picking up the receiver to the weeping and wailing voice of the wife of one of my good friends in another state. As she stuttered and stammered and wept and told me her story of the disarray of the evening before where late in the night she had discovered her husband abusing the internet to feed his own lusts that had led to an entire all-night conversation and difficult discussion as they tried to work together on a new plan and a new strategy. It was in total dismay and disarray that she called looking for some encouragement and some help. Trust had been broken. Lines had been crossed. And the heart shattered. Because a man had yielded to temptation. It's not a new concept, is it? Think about that great King David of old, where one evening as he was supposed to be out in another place, he stays home and he walks on his balcony and he looks over and he lusts after his neighbor's wife, creating a chapter in his life, really the rest of his life of just very difficult circumstances because of yielding to temptation. I think about Achan, that warrior of old in the book of Joshua, and there they were fighting, carrying out the commands of the Lord, and in the middle of the, of the, of the chaos of battle, there he is. And there's that Babylonian garment and that wedge of gold and the silver and something inside him screamed out, you should take that. And there was temptation. He didn't plan on it. He didn't mean for it to be that way. But there it was. This morning, as I've referenced, and I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 3, I want us to talk about the practical subject of dealing with temptation. I'm going to talk a little bit about the mechanics of what happened in this passage. There are so many ways of approaching Genesis chapter 3 and what a foundational passage it is for us. And this morning, I want us to read as our text a passage that we've read several times in the weeks past, but we'll read it once again, verses 1 through 13, as we deal with this most important subject that I think everyone here this morning can relate to. I trust you'll be encouraged and strengthened in some very practical ways as we observe what happened in the beautiful setting of the Garden of Eden, where inappropriate lines were crossed, and the result was chaos and devastation as sin took over. When lust conceived, and it led to sin, and then sin brought death. 
Genesis chapter 3, follow along in your Bibles as we read once again. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together, and they made coverings for themselves. And then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. This morning as we look at this passage from the angle of a practical application of our everyday living. I don't think I have to illustrate too deeply to the audience today to recognize that all of us struggle in a battle with temptation. It's interesting to me that we see it in this passage and we also see it in the context of Scripture that this is a, this is a, a three-dimensional warfare that's going on here. Let's take just a minute and talk about that. Why do I call it a three-dimensional warfare? It's because when we deal with temptation, there are battles that are going on on three fronts. It's not as though we just have an enemy in a one-dimensional sense, but there are three areas that we have to think about. We were coming back from the beach up I-95, a good ways from southern North Carolina, and part of the ways we came up I-95 up through Richmond and And even as Janet was asleep and Jonathan was in the back of the van and I was meditating about uh, this message, it was really evident to me that there were three areas, and, and, and obviously, and the Bible teaches us this, it's not new to me, but it was real to me. Sitting there in my Honda Odyssey with adventures in Odyssey on the CD tape player, and Jonathan had fallen asleep and Janet was there, that I had within the capacity of my own flesh the residuals of the old ways, that I could literally sin driving in my car in the middle of an interstate with my wife to whom I've been faithful to and my boy and the pastor of a church and that I had within me the capacities to sin right there within my own flesh. Isn't that interesting? But secondly, the Bible surely makes clear to us that there is a, there is a whole arena of the spiritual Now, we know, and we've referenced this as we've been working our way through the book of Genesis and and being challenged from these 
foundational and important passages that when we read Genesis chapter 3, we know coming in from chapter 2 that we're in a context of good. It's the Garden of Eden, and God pronounced it good. And there on that tree that day, hanging down from a branch or walking on legs, or we don't even know how it looked exactly, maybe hovering on wi- with wings, was this beautiful creature identified as the serpent later condemned to crawl on its belly. I take it to be their wings or legs were removed from it. And Revelation chapter 20 clearly points out that this, was the, this old serpent was Satan, evidently indwelling this creature created by God that was good. And in this arena, we have a spiritual battle that goes on. For us, it's a battle that goes on in the mind, doesn't it? You stop and think for a minute about your thought life for a second. Think about thoughts. What are thoughts? What is the substance of thought? Where do they come from? What maneuvers? And, you know, you, you know, Dr. Matt over here, he wants to explain to me that it's electrodes firing and all this. You cannot explain thoughts. How do you measure? How do you measure a thought? Is it an inch long? It's outside of the dimension in which we live. The closest thing to us in the, in the unseen spiritual world, and we have such limited capacity, don't we, in our physical realm to, to see the spiritual, and yet God's word clearly teaches that there is a spiritual realm. I think our thought life is the closest thing to the spiritual realm, isn't it? And Satan evidently has an ability to come, and we know that he's a schemer from Ephesians, we know that, that he's a liar, John 8, He speaks lies, and when he speaks his native language, he speaks in lies. It's his native tongue. He's most fluent when he's speaking lies, John 8, How does that happen? What goes on driving in my car up I-95 that I could have the most horrendous, sinful of thoughts and I could attribute it more than even to my own flesh and the weaknesses of my flesh and the capacity that all of us have in our flesh to sin. But we can even say that I'm under attack by Satan. We have some illustrations in Scripture of this, don't we? I mean, just think with me. Remember when Jesus was soon ready to go to the cross and and Peter suggests to him that there might be some other ways of looking at this whole deal. Jesus turns to Peter, and what does he say? Get thee behind me, Satan. What's he talking about? That there are now con- there's concepts that are being introduced to the mind that are direct from Satan through the vehicle of words and ideas in the mind. How does that work? I'm not sure. And think about in the context of the early church in Acts chapter 5, I believe. And we've got a great young couple in the church, Ananias and Sapphira. Oh, we've enjoyed eating chocolate cake and Mountain Dew with them at church fellowships. And they're a great couple. And one Sunday, they watched Brother Barnabas come to the front and put at the feet of the apostles the great offering that he brought in from the sale of some properties that he owned. And what a blessing. And the church clapped and said, yes, praise God for Brother Barnabas. Praise God, we have food for our widows. Praise God, we can send out missionaries. Look at the wealth of money that's come in from this transaction of the business. And Barnabas gave it all as an offering to the Lord. And somehow Ananias and Sapphira, they went and sold some of their property. And they wanted to duplicate, evidently, whatever happened before in the context of that passage. You look at it, and they come forward and put money down at the one at a time. First Ananias, he comes in and puts the money down at the Apostle Peter's feet. Hallelujah, praise God, Apostle Peter. 
Brother Peter, I sold some property. Here's some more money. Let the church clap for me. And I'm giving all of the money to the church. Liar, liar, pants on fire, noses longer than a telephone wire. Right? He snookered some money out of the deal for his own pocket. Wouldn't have been wrong. It's not wrong to sell property. Go buy a new, you know, deer rifle with it if you want. Whatever you do with your money, put it in the stock market. Make more money. But don't say, I'm giving it all to the Lord. And Peter looks at him and what does he say? Why are you lying to me and lying to the Holy Spirit? You are of the devil. Why has Satan put this in you to do this? Somehow in the spiritual realm, Satan has an ability to to be involved in the thought processes of our lives, our mind, and our heart attitude, and tempt us to sin. That's a scary concept, isn't it? It's a spiritual reality. It's hard to understand. And so what do we have? We have enemy number one. That's the flesh. The Apostle Paul talked about that in Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8, didn't he? In Romans chapter 7, that's that passage where the Apostle Paul, remember that passage, the tug-of-war passage? Oh, the things that I don't want to do, I do, but the things that I do want to do, I don't do. And oh, wretched man that I am, and in my flesh dwells no good thing. You see, we're in process, aren't we? Even when we've accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior. You remember the day you accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? And he washed away your sin with his shed blood. And that day, you entered into the righteousness of Christ, the only thing that can qualify you before a holy and righteous Heavenly Father to look at you and say, hey, I'll let you into my heaven, Steve Kinnaman. Not because any good thing you do, but because you are robed and wrapped up in the righteousness of Christ. Praise God. And I recognize in my sinfulness I needed his blood to cleanse me and I took his righteousness and I was judicially, once and for all, declared righteous. Stamped, approved, can get into heaven. A child of God. That's justification. Something else happens there too. It's called sanctification. It's a positional righteousness. I am positionally sanctified. That's an old theological word. People don't like to throw around big words in church, but that's a great word. I'm sanctified. It means set apart from sin. And in God's eyes, Van Marceau, Steve Kinnaman, based upon the shed blood of Christ and our faith and trust in Christ alone, we have been positionally set apart from sin. Amen. Praise God. No merit of our own, all of his grace and his work. But I'm still alive. I'm still living on this earth. I'm still moving. Walking the beach in my t-shirt and my shorts, holding hands with my wife, loving life. And the residuals of the old ways are still there, aren't they? And that's what we call the flesh that we've been talking about. How inside my van, driving up I-95 all alone, in my flesh, in and of myself, I have the capacity to sin. And so there is a progressive sanctification taking place. That as I grow in grace and as I grow in the knowledge of my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, yes, there's this positional sanctification, now a progressive sanctification. Hopefully at age 48, older than dirt, I'm doing better than I was at 28, right? And then, but someday, as John said in 1 John chapter 2 and chapter 3, remember? That we will be with him and we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Part of what John was talking about there was the fact that this body of death that the Apostle Paul cried out in Romans 7 that I referenced a minute ago, who shall deliver me from this body of death? Praise be to God, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
and I will one day know what it is to be in his presence and to be sinless. I won't be a God like some false religions teach. I will just be completely sanctified by the blood and work of Jesus Christ. It will be fulfilled, and the residuals of the old life will finally be gone forever. It's three stages of a real spiritual work in my life. Positional sanctification, progressive sanctification, ultimate sanctification in his presence. Praise God. So there's the flesh, the devil. There's one other enemy, and I noticed that driving up I-95 as well. I was driving along, listening to Adventures in Odyssey, clicking over to ESPN Radio once in a while, checking the scores of the games. Real glad to hear East Carolina lost in overtime yesterday, stuff like that, just going along. And I look up, and there's a sign. And the sign says that if I pull off at the next exit, there's a great place for adult entertainment. Well, I'm an adult. I like entertainment. i got to process something here. What is that? No, not that kind of entertainment. Can't do that. Well, there it is. Big old billboard right on the side of I-95. I drive a little farther, and there's a big sign with big, bold letters on it that says, come to our restaurant, and there's even a picture of the kind of waitress that will wait on me at that restaurant. No, I don't think Janet or the Lord will approve of me going to that restaurant. Better not do that. And then I go along, and there's another big billboard. And it's got big numbers on it, huge numbers. $16 million, it says in letters. And if I'll just get off at that exit and play the lotto, I might win that $16 million. Well, maybe I've already lost my home and my car and my job because I'm a compulsive gambler. I'm driving up 95 trying to have victory overs, and now I can get me $16 million for doing nothing. Money does grow on trees. You understand what I'm saying? So here's my other enemy. My other enemy is the very context of the world in which I live. So there I go. There is the three-dimensional warfare. Did you follow that? The flesh, the devil, and the world. And you know what's interesting? I think that in this very picture in Genesis 3 of dealing with temptation to sin and crossing the boundaries of God's plan of blessing for my life, we can learn some really practical things. So let's look now at Genesis 3, and let's break it down. And I want to do it in the order, not we, we often say the flesh, the devil, and the world, but we're going to do it in a different order. We're going to go in the order that it shows up in the passage. The first thing we see is the serpent or Satan, so the first thing we want to see is his role in temptation. The second thing we're going to talk about is the context of the garden in which he lived and the externals. What were the dynamics or the mechanics of the temptation that Eve dealt with that she could have changed or she could have had something to do with that? She didn't have to get off at that exit. So it was the world in which we lived. So even though it was a good world, I'm not implying that the garden was a context of evil, like our world, which is dominated by Satan and his schemes. And then thirdly, I want us to look in her heart the draw of the flesh within her or the desire that she had spring up in her naivety and in her innocence for the first time she senses a desire that from then on you and I have struggled with on an ongoing basis. This desire in me to do things that are not blessed of the Lord. So there's the three areas. First Satan and then the arena of sinful behavior, the world and then the heartbeat of the battle inside of my flesh. Let's take a look at what's going on with Satan here. Let's break it down. Before you do that, will you turn with me quickly now to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 
2 Corinthians, excuse me, chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And look at what Paul says here in the context of dealing with a ministry, the church at Corinth, and he's challenging them to live for Jesus. He's challenging them to be a Christ-centered church. They've attacked him as one of their leaders, and he wants to straighten them out and point them back to Christ to not yield to living below their potential as a church. And notice what he says in this context of 2 Corinthians 11.3. But I am afraid, Corinth and Fellowship Bible Church, Paul says, but I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Isn't that a great phrase? Your pure and sincere devotion to Christ. Don't you long to have that as as the testimony of your life? Look at that guy. Look at that girl. If anybody is sincerely devoted to Christ, it's them. And look at the purity of their life, the separateness from sin. And the Apostle Paul says, I long for you to be a church full of people who are sincerely and purely devoted to Christ. But I am concerned that in exactly the same way the serpent deceived Eve, that he will deceive you. And so I take it from that phrase, back to Genesis 3 now, I take it from that phrase that Satan is kind of a broken record. He found a mechanism, he found a technique, he found a template for tempting people, and it works every time, over and over and over and over. He doesn't have to be creative. He's just got a system that he knows how to work. And he did it from the beginning, and he's still doing it today. That's amazing, isn't it? Genesis chapter 3, take a look there. Look what he says. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, notice the first thing he does. Did God really say? Satan's number one mechanism is that he questions the clarity of God's word. He questions, number one, the clarity of God's word. Do you think that Eve didn't know what God said? I think Eve knew exactly what God said. I don't think there was any confusion in her mind. Eat from any tree in the garden, but don't eat from this tree right here. Okay. I don't think there's any confusion. Is there even any room for, you know, if you parse that in the Greek, it could mean that this tree is that tree and that tree is this tree. And Satan says, did God really mean it? When, did God really say? He got her to doubt the word of God, didn't he? He got her to doubt the word of God. He's doing the same thing today, isn't he? You know, across my desk at the counseling, in the office of, when I'm doing counseling, I am amazed. And it's almost always dealing with issues in which God has spoken in his word just as clearly as he did to Eve and Adam on which tree not to eat from. God's word, it's not, it's usually not, you know, fog areas or gray areas where there's big commentaries written on trying to figure out what God really meant, whether he was going to come in the clouds before, as a rapture before the judgment begins or if they, before the, and during the judgment and a mid-rapture mid and, and a partial rapture and is there really a rapture and that word's not even in the Bible but it's a Latin word and it's not those things. No, it's, it's clear. 
It's things like sleeping with my neighbor's wife. It's things like stealing. It's things that, like, God couldn't be any clearer. And they sit across the desk from me, and they want to say, well, I know what God's word says, but I'm not sure it really means that for me. And sometimes I just want to scream, give me a break. What are you thinking? How can it be any clearer? But that's what Satan does. And at that moment, I recognize they're under attack, man. We need to pray. Listen, did God really say to doubt the word of God? Secondly, he goes on and she answers and she says, well, we may eat from the fruit. And she adds a little bit. And some people build a case for the fact that she added to the word of God. And I don't know if Adam had suggested that to her, or if God himself had potentially, God himself could have suggested it. It's just not recorded in chapter 2 where God gave the instruction. Don't eat from this tree. And she says, and don't even touch it or you will die. I don't think God told them if they touched it, they would die. But we don't have enough information to know. But I was thinking, you know, usually if I'm not supposed to do something, it's best for me to just stay away from it. You know? It's kind of like mommy's got this new, beautiful wingback chair that she just had reupholstered with cream upholstery, and it's in her sitting room, and it's just beautiful, and flowers, and it's just pretty. It's really a nice place. And she's got four- and five-year-old boys who come in and out of a muddy backyard, and she says, boys, don't you sit in that chair. So what does mom say if the boys are over there rubbing their hands all over it and playing and running around, chasing each other around? Boys! Get away from my chair, right? So in some ways, I can build an argument that there's wisdom in her thinking that she said, God said, don't eat it. And in her mind, she wasn't even supposed to touch it. But regardless, she didn't eat it without touching it. And she kind of adds to the word of God. But she certainly understood God's word. But then notice what Satan's response is in verse 4. It's unbelievable. Eve, you won't die. You won't die. Eve, eat it. You won't die. I won't die? Really? He comes out and he contradicts the very word of God. So not only does he get her to question the clarity of God's word, he contradicts the authority of God's word. How much clearer could God have been? Adam, Eve, enjoy yourselves. What a good God, huh? I'll come visit you every evening after supper. We'll walk around, talk, fish a little bit, you know catch and release, and there was no death yet, and, uh, and we'll just, let's have a good time, you know, I'll just share things with you, how awesome is that, but don't eat from that tree right there, got it, got it, no problem, and then here's Satan, the serpent, and he says to Eve, you won't die, the very authority of the word. Listen, you know, not only does God do this at an individual level, but he can do this at a corporate level. Do you know that? Our country and our world is full of groups of people, churches, and even entire denominations that have gone down this exact same road. Did God really say? Did God really say that? I don't think so. Not only that, God's not going to do that if you do this. You can choose your lifestyle. That's not what God meant in the word. And you know what you should think when you see that and an entire denomination is split or voting or their, their seminary leadership is teaching? that You can rip out Genesis 1 through 11. It's just an allegory anyway. 
they are under the beguilement of the serpent because he does the same thing every time. And he takes entire groups of people down the tubes. Question the clarity, deny the authority, and thirdly, he mocks the integrity of God's word. He mocked the integrity of God's word. Look what he says. In verse 4, he says, you will not surely die. That's a direct contradiction to get her to disobey. First he gets her to doubt, then he gets her to disobey, but then he wants to discredit God himself. Notice, he mocks the integrity of the word to get her to discredit the whole word and character of God. Verse 5, for God knows that when you eat of it, you will be just like him. Okay, got it? Eat it, be like God. Oh, you mean that God is holding back on me. You know, I was, I was bothered by this tree. And I know that I have all these millions of square miles or thousands of square miles probably of beauty to enjoy, but God held back this one tree right here. That's not fair. That's what Satan's doing. Do you think God has your best interest in mind, Eve? He's holding back. There's even greater things in store for you, Eve. All you have to do is eat it. You're not going to die. Listen, God couldn't have been any clearer. God couldn't have been any stronger. You'll die. That's not hard to understand. That's downright scary and frightening. And Satan, with just a couple of words, beguiles her. and gets her to think. God's holding back. What is that? That is nothing but a downright questioning of the heart and integrity of God's love for me, his child. Lord, you promised to bless me, but, but my neighbor's got a big boat, and I wanted a big boat, and my neighbor's got this, and I like what that guy did, and I know a guy that did all that, and that's like, whoa, I like to do all that. But Christians don't do all that. So how can it be that you have my best interest in mind, Lord? And the next thing you know, I'm questioning the very integrity of my Heavenly Father. Who loved Eve more, the serpent or God? It's like some of you who've dealt with children who've gone astray and even ended up in big trouble. It's like, you love them. You gave your whole life for them. You changed their diaper. And then some punk kid comes along, says three sentences to them, and they go off and get in jail. What's your problem? I love you. They don't love you. They love themselves. Duh. That's what Satan does. Question the integrity of the relationship. God doesn't have your best interest. There it is. That's his scheme. He does it all the time. He does it for entire groups of people. Entire churches have left the truth because of this. Why? Questioning the clarity of God's word. Contradicting the authority of God's word that I come in under the authority of God's word no matter what. And mocking the integrity of God's word. Well, that's Satan's template. Let's go on to the arena. Okay, that's what Satan's doing. Now let's look at the context of the garden and let's look at the arena. This is driving up I-95. This is the world in which we live. What is here? What is it about where I live in this world that makes it easy to sin? First of all, I want you to see, and this is more from an inference than, a, than an exegetical response to the passage, but isn't it interesting that where Eve is in this huge garden, tell me, where's Eve standing? She is, number one, she is in the obviously tempting situation. You see that? She is in the obviously tempting situation. This is the location of where sin is. 
Now, sin comes from within, okay? You can go build a platform down in the middle of the woods or go live up in the attic of the pavilion or something all by yourself in the dark for the next 10 years and you can be a dirty, rotten, pagan sinner up in there all by yourself, even with no cable TV. You can do that because sin comes from within. But there's an external grid, there's a framework around us that, is, that it ends up being an enabling world in which we live. That's part of the fallenness of our sinful world. It enables me to turn away from God. That's one of the things that creation groans under sin. And people take beautiful God-given things and pervert them and turn them in the external world around me. But one of the things Eve did was as simple as can be, and that was she simply did not avoid the obviously tempting situation. Listen, guys that are into sports gambling and are addicted, and there's certain restaurants where they go and, and, and bars, and they can go to that bar and they can gamble while they eat a big steak and watch on all these screen TVs and they can gamble. And it's so accepted, but it's become compulsive. They're out of control. They've begun forging checks. They haven't made their house payments. They're stuck in gambling. Let me tell you something, buddy. The first thing you got to do is quit going to that restaurant. Quit going to that bar, you see? Now, it's in his heart to gamble. But one of the things you got to do is don't go down there. You can't walk in to the devil's playground to stand against the devil. You've got to remove yourselves. That's one reason why, and when I counsel people regularly, you've got to be in church, man. You've got to be here. You need to be in Sunday school with your Bible open on your lap. Why? Because this is a spiritual war. There's no easy answers here. There's no catch-all formula. People are always looking for the formula that I can overcome my temptation. I got this real problem, Pastor. You give me three things and give me a victory by next Tuesday morning at 10 o'clock? No, I cannot. But I can tell you one thing that in the process of sanctification and walking and growing, that by next week, by God's grace, you can be farther along in victory than you were last week. And one of the things you've got to quit doing is you've got to avoid the obviously tempting situation. There are places that you must not go. Now, I was thinking about Proverbs chapter 7. Remember that picture in Proverbs 7? We'll not take time to turn there. Solomon writing in the second person. Remember, that's where he says, I looked out the lattice of my window and I observed among the crowd on the street a young man. And he, it was in the twilight of the evening and he was walking down the street towards her house. Well, you know who she is, don't you? She's the adulterous woman. I speak this message at camps a little bit out of Proverbs 7, a message on moral purity. And one of the things I ask the high school kids when I'm talking about that is, do you think that, she, that he knew where she lived? I guarantee he knew where she lived. Do you think he knew what time of day to go down that block? I guarantee he knew what time of day to go down that block. Do you think he knew which house she lived in? I guarantee he knew which house. If not, he knew awfully close. You see, he walked down the wrong street at the right time. There are certain places you just can't go. Eve needed to be away from the tree. Secondly, I want you to notice in the context of this passage that Eve is engaged, number two, in a totally inappropriate conversation. A totally inappropriate conversation. God has made everything clear. There is no need for this discussion. And the first thing he does is question the word of God. She knew immediately that that conversation was going down the wrong road. Now, she might have been naive, and Adam evidently did not watch over her like he... He should have. 
And I would take it, too, that this is not a sexist statement. And men are vulnerable to words, too, but I think that women are particularly vulnerable to the right words. They long to hear certain things come in their ears. Satan engages in a conversation, and it's a totally inappropriate conversation. Listen, there's certain people you just can't talk to. There's certain places you can't go, and there's certain people you don't talk to. 1 Corinthians 15 says that bad company corrupts good morals. So you know what you do? You find some good company. But I like my old friends. So, you got to ditch them. You got to leave them go. I'm going to lead them to Jesus. No, you're not. They're going to drag you down. A little leaven leavens a whole lump, man. It's amazing how when you pour a little clean water into a, bo in a bottle of jar of dirty water, that the dirty water doesn't get clean, does it? The clean water gets dirty. You say, well, I'm not water. I'm a person. I know. Do you understand my point as well? When you're weak and when you're vulnerable, there's places you don't go and there's people you don't talk to. An inappropriate conversation has, be has been the beginning of the death knell of many a man. And you know it when you're in it. This guy at work is saying things to me that he shouldn't be saying to me. Or you ladies say. Or that lady... She says things to me that no other lady says to me. And I really like it. Because it's inappropriate, dude. It's a wrong conversation. You've got to get away from there. Thirdly, and I thought it was interesting how receptive she was to the incredibly bogus information that he gave her. Number three, she was incredibly, the incredibly bogus information was part of the thing. The billboard signs, the PR, the press... The things that were said to her were completely bogus, and she buys into it. It couldn't be more clear. I've already emphasized that. If you eat from this tree, you will die. Satan comes along and puts up a billboard and says, if you eat from this tree, you'll be like God. Oh, I'm going to believe the billboard. Bogus information. That's like the Proverbs 7 guy again. You remember that passage I'm talking about, right, in Proverbs 7? And the guy walks down the street next to her house, and she comes out, the adulterous woman comes out to the young man, I think Solomon is talking about himself. And you remember what she says to the guy? I have been waiting for you. You are the one I've been waiting for. You are the one I wanted to see. And he said, not my buddy Joe, no, me. She doesn't even know his name. She didn't even know he was coming down that street. And she goes out and fills his mind with all kinds of ideas and it's bogus information, and instead of the fireworks of bad information and recognizing it, other fireworks go off, and, and then like a deer to the slaughter, right, getting an arrow through the liver. What he thought was so good turned out to be the worst thing he ever did in his life. And Proverbs 7 and chapter 6 says he will never, ever completely recover from it. And that's just one kind of temptation and one kind of sin. But there's the arena, and isn't that true in our world today? The obviously tempting situations. Look, if, you, if you're trying to quit drinking, for example, and you're a compulsive drinker, like I was talking about the gambler guy, the same thing is true. There are certain places you just can't go. There are certain people, too, you cannot be with. That's why you need new friendships. That's why you get your bow out on Saturday morning, or all of a sudden you get up and you tell your wife, your wife says, where are you going? I'm going to church Saturday morning. Well, there's a men's Bible study at 7.30. I'm going to that. But you don't like Bible study. I do now. And then I'm going to the 3D archery shoot. You don't even have a bow. I know, but I'm going to borrow one. What do you do? I'm going to put myself in the context of new relationships. 
There are certain people I'm not going fishing with anymore. You see? The obviously tempting situation, the totally inappropriate conversations that go on, and the incredibly bogus information. This week at the, at the house where we were down at the beach, there was a television with cable in every single room. In the kitchen, in the living room, and in all the bedrooms. And Jonathan watched cartoons way more than he should have. And that's not an illustration, that's just a comment. I don't owe you five bucks. <laughs> so we watched a, a more television than we normally watched. Mostly news and stuff, but other things as well. Most of it pretty appropriate. It's just amazing to me, the information that is fed to you all day long. It's unbelievable. It's like, shut that thing off. Get it out of my life. I don't need these messages coming into me. The bogus information. If you just do this, then you'll get this. No, you won't. That is totally bogus. You'll just have debt. Or whatever, you know? It's like, tell yourself the truth. Well, there we go. That's Satan. That's the arena. Let's quickly see what's going on in our heart, and then we'll go home and eat dinner. Thirdly, the battleground, the hidden battleground of my heart. Let's just wrap this up. It's very obvious, and I've already, I think, made the points that you need. But this is the desires of my flesh. Number one, don't you see her for the first time standing next to that tree in her heart, springing up within her, was this desire to cross over the appropriate lines of God's limitations in her life. She had a desire to cross over the lines of limitation that God had put in her life. Do you realize how much God limits us and it's for our own good? You're not supposed to do everything you want to do. It'll kill you. It'll destroy your home. It'll destroy your bank account. Appropriate limitations. And for the first time in her life, something sprang up within her she wanted to cross over that line and say, you know what, I think that though God limited me, reminds me of a funny story. I think it's funny anyway. It's an old joke. These Hell's Angels guys, rough guys, are riding down the highway, and they get this little road rage thing going on with this businessman in his Mercedes. Finally, they hem him in and pull him over, and they're really mad. They, they rip him out of his car. One of the big old hairy Hell's Angels guy takes a piece of chalk, puts a circle back down on the pavement, says, stand in there, I'm going to beat you beat you down, and they take their chains, and they whip out their chains, and they start beating up his car, bashing out the glass, ripping it up, smashing in this Mercedes, and every time they look back, the guy's standing in the circle just laughing. It makes them so mad, they go back to whipping on that car, just busting it up, busting it up, busting it up. They look back, he's back there laughing. Makes them mad, they go back, busting it up. Finally, the guy walks back there and screams, why are you laughing? The guy's just holding his side. He says, the funniest thing, he said, every time you're smashing my car, I step out of the circle, and you don't even see me. It's kind of a stupid story, but it's funny, isn't it? It's what's going on in Eve's heart, right? Isn't there something about even though this brings utter chaos to my life, man, stepping across the line is just, there's a rush there, man. Those guys are going to kill me if they catch me crossing the line like they're doing to my car. And <laughs> tee -hee -tee -hee, they didn't even see me do it. I'll do it again and again and again. Moron. Just to cross the line. Why'd you do that? felt like it. Crossing the lines of limitation, number two, the decision to trust her own personal judgment, right? I can handle it. 
trusting her own personal judgment. Number three, her dissatisfaction with God's plan of blessing for her life. Had God put together a package of blessing for her? It was unbelievable. No, she's not satisfied. She can eat from any tree in the garden, but I want to eat from this tree. What is that? That is a blatant dissatisfaction with God's plan of blessing. That's what it is. And number four, the disregard for the known consequences of sin. The disregard for the known consequences of sin. It's mind-boggling, isn't it? Eve, if you eat from this tree, you're going to die. Eve, do you understand what I say? I understand what you say. Eat her down. You know, almost always when we fall to the lust of the heart and enter into sinful relationships and we yield to temptation and the lust of the flesh lures us on and sin takes root and then sin brings death, James chapter 1. It almost never has anything to do with a lack of information, does it? I didn't know that was going to happen. Yes, you did, but you thought you could handle it. You knew exactly what was going to happen, but you still felt like doing it. What is it about us? We're not robots. God could have made robots. God just called us to obedience, and but then he said, greater am I who can be in you than he that's in the world, and I will give you the strength, and you can have the victory through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you're looking for a quick, easy formula fix this morning, there's not one, but I'm going to tell you, number one, you've got an enemy in the flesh. Number two, you've got an enemy in the devil. Number three, you've got an enemy in the world. And we see it right here, don't we? And so there's places we can't go and people we cannot be with, and we have to replace that with other places that we go and other people that we build into our life. And then the process of sanctification, as I fill my mind with the Word of God and as I grow in grace and as I'm renewed by the Spirit of God and strengthened, Praise God, I can have the victory and I can look back and say, you know what? That part of my life is history. It's under the blood. It's over. Let's bow in prayer. Father, show us how to walk, how to live, how to view this sinful world, how to understand the schemes of Satan, how to discipline ourselves over the flesh. Father, what a tragic picture we looked at today of a beautiful lady in a beautiful place who yielded to lesser things with unbelievable ramifications. Father, would you please help us in a practical way to walk in the truth? We thank you for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that brings salvation and that this is the same grace that teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly pleasures and to live self-controlled and upright lives in this present age. Show us that we can do it. Show us that we must do it. And give us a holy tenacity to do it. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.